0: So we've started this new series called More Than Conquerors, which is uh, really looking at um, uh, the text from Romans 8.37, but more importantly than uh, looking at a specific text, we're really trying to kind of see how we as normal everyday people can really enjoy living a victorious life Um, and all of this sometimes sounds really nice in theory and so today's today's um, uh, topic is that victory is essential sometimes we think that like yeah I mean st. Paul was victorious but come on now he was st. Paul uh, you know and uh, this other person and that person, Saint George was a great saint, or whatever, or or people in our um, you know our contemporary and modern history, right? your um, Mother Teresa, or this or that. But I'm just I'm just me. So how how does this apply to me? And I'm going to have my ups and downs. So Father John, this you know like this idea of living victoriously and having an attitude of a winner right and every day when i look at my day do i feel like do i feel like i'm winning or do i feel like i'm not right and that's really what this whole series is about but today is very specifically about that god doesn't want us to be these downtrodden you know people who are walking around like going like this you know all day long in a spirit of brokenness Humility, just as a, like, this is a little preamble, humility isn't uh, to walk around with my head bowed like this. That's not what humility is, or it may be what humility is to some people. But the humility that's described in Scripture, the commandment to be humble in Scripture, doesn't say that at all. It says, humble yourself before the Lord, and He shall lift you up. The humility that I'm supposed to have is supposed to be between me and God. But what I end up doing is the exact opposite. I end up walking around, pretending to be humble, going like this to people. And when I get home, I tell God, how come you did this? Why did you do that? Answer me now. It's like the exact opposite. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and He shall lift you up. He shall lift you up. The humility that God is calling us to have is between us and Him. When Job goes through all his trials, in the end, God tells him, where were you when I planted the trees? Where were you when I collected the waters? Where were you when this? Where were you when that? Where were you with the Leviathan and the rhinoceros and the this and the that, all these things? Where were you? And the product, end product of that for Job is he's humble. And he realizes that God is not treating him based on his merits like his friends were telling him all along. There's, You're you must have done something wrong, so God is punishing you, his friends told him. He realized that not at all. God's ways are so far beyond our comprehension. He's so great, so amazing, so huge that I would be a fool to think that I'm going to begin to understand all of his workings. But I can understand his character. I can't understand all of his workings, but I can understand his character. And that brings Job to a place of great humility. And all of this ends up in Job being blessed so ever richly by God and him doubling all of that he had ever had. We ended last time with the verse that's kind of like our theme for for these few weeks. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And my question to you was, what is your in all these things? Right? Because St. Paul says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. And your homework was to ask yourself, what are all these things? St. Paul says in persecution, famine, nakedness, peril. Sword and so on, in all yet in all of these things, I might not be. No one is pursuing me with a scimitar. No one is. You know, I'm not really in danger of famine. Not in this country, anyways, right? Uh, and and so on and so on. But what what do I feel threatened by? What do I feel could be a threat to me? And Saint Paul is saying, yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. And if we don't know what the threat is against us, we won't know what is causing our fear. We won't be able to submit that to God, and we won't be able to receive His healing from from those fears. So my homework to you last week was to ask yourself, what are your yet in all of these things? Because the verse starts with, yet in all of these things we are more than conquerors. Yet in my hour trying so hard to have a child but not being able to we are more than conquerors yet in my difficult finances we are we are more than conquerors yet in my aloneness and loneliness we're more than yet in my illness be it of body or mind or soul or spirit or whatever we are more than conquerors what is what is it for you that you feel is a threat to you and by the end of this series my prayer would be that you could look that Think, straight in the face, and say, yet in all of these things, I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus who loved me. So today, we're going to talk about how victory is essential. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, like the, the sort of the... the, the The gold medal, you know what I mean? Not everybody who participates in the Olympics gets a gold medal. Only the gold medalists do. Only the top in each of their fields. So only the top Christians live in victory. The rest of us, you know, we gotta have some of this and some of that. No, no. And that's what we're gonna see today. That victory is essential. It is, it is like part of living in the kingdom of Christ. It is part of being a Christian. Without it, something is missing. I'm gonna ask you something. Are you hanging out in the tomb? Now, I love, I love the tomb. I heard a sermon a long, long, long time ago which told me it is a mistake. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say it's a mistake, but this is what this person was saying in a sermon. He was saying it is a mistake to say that the tomb was empty because the tomb on resurrection day was not empty. In fact, when it was, it was an open tomb. It was not empty. When they entered in, what did they find? They found... Grave clothes, and that's actually I- extremely important because the only reason people robbed graves in the first century was for two things. One was for the grave clothes because they were, they were expensive, right? And two was sometimes they would bury people with like jewelry or gold or whatever so people would go to rob that stuff. Certainly, nobody was after a half-rotten corpse. Nobody was after a half-rotten corpse, People were after the other stuff. So the fact that the other stuff was still there and the corpse was gone may clarify that this was not done with the purpose of theft. Right? So the tomb was open. It wasn't empty. And I frequently in 100 million sermons have talked about how the evidence for the resurrection is in the tomb. And the evidence for the resurrection of Christ in my own life will be in the tombs of my life. In the dead places of my life, I will find resurrection. Things don't come back to life unless they're dead. So there are, if I spend all my time avoiding the areas of my life that are dead and turning a blind eye to them in a kind of um, like a way of sort of repressing them, not, there's a healthy way to do that. But I'm talking about where you really just ignore them because you really don't want to deal with that. You'll never see resurrection because resurrection happens... In the tomb but after the resurrection happens right what would have happened if the Apostles would have stayed this was about the grave clothes what would have happened if the Apostles would have stayed in the tomb so they all come to the tomb they're like hey this is the last place Jesus was at and they come and they stay in the tomb and they all camp out there in the tomb right and they and they just stay in the tomb forever well the gospel would have never been preached Right, So it is healthy to know what the tombs are in my life. And to be looking for resurrection, the resurrection of Christ in those things. And God to resurrect me as well as himself in those things. That is great. Y'all following me? But sticking, staying there forever and just moping around dead in the tomb is not what God wants for you and me. The gospel would have never been preached. If Christianity would have stayed... In the open tomb. Here's the evidence for the resurrection. Here's the joy of the resurrection. Now just leave it in the tomb. No, we've got to go out. And we need to go out of the tomb in a special way. That special way is a word that we use in, in church, but it actually didn't start in church. It was a Greek word that was, it was part of the Greek Empire, and then the Romans translated it to Latin and they used it. And that was, in, in Greek, evangelion. And that, what does that mean, evangelized In English, the, 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 the verb is evangelize. What does that mean? This is what it meant in their you know, context of antiquity. When, when, an army, when the emperor's army would go out to war, and they would win, and they would win against the people who threatened their safety, and threatened their security, and threatened their well-being, on their way back on the the army after their victory on their way back would send runners and the runners would go into all the villages where the army was going to go and they would tell people the good news and those people were called evangelists they were to run ahead of the king and ahead of the victorious army who had already won the victory and tell people the good news the people who threatened us are no more the people who threatened us Don't threaten us anymore, and our well-being is secure, and our life is going to be good. I have good tidings for you. I have good news for you. It was the spread of good news, but it's very specific good news. Good news of victory and a coming king. So what would the people do? The same thing they did for Jesus on Palm Sunday. The villagers would prepare food for the army. And they would prepare and they would take their, their, their like, uh, any clothes or garments or whatever, and they'd spread them out in the streets and they'd cut palm branches. And when they'd come and they would sing and they would clap and they would be like, like a, a huge uh, uh, festival as the army is passing through, right? Because these are the people who assured our safety and assured our salvation. These are the people who saved us from slavery. And the enemy is dead. That's the story of the resurrection. That's what we sing in the resurrection song. Death has died and life reigns and upon those in the tombs he has bestowed life. And that's what this is all about. So the message needed to go out of the tomb and we who are along the way must receive it with joy. And if you are so inclined and want to join the party, people would join they would join the army until they would make it back to the capital, to the capital city and to the citadel. And they would be rejoicing there for days and days and months and so on. And, and all of this, right? So that's what this, is, that's what this is all about, right? God doesn't want you and me to live this, this downtrodden Christianity. None of what I just described is downtrodden. Right? None of what I just described also, because evangelism sometimes puts a bit of a sour taste in people's, uh, in people's minds of being like Bible bashing and forcing faith down people's throats. That's not what they were doing either. They were just running to tell people, the enemy is dead. The enemy is gone. Join in the festivities if you want to. right? Um, and that's what God is calling you and calling me to do. We must live in victory. I'm all for knowing where the tombs are in our life. But we must exit the tomb and join the festivities. And j- join the joy. Right? Victory is essential. It is essential. There's, there's, all, there's no point. Like St. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ did not indeed rise from the dead, then we are the most pitiable of humans. Really. He says, like, we make all these sacrifices and we, we deny ourselves to follow Jesus, and we do all this stuff, and then Jesus doesn't even, isn't even alive anymore, right? Like, that would be the, the most pitiable thing on the face of the earth. It says, of course, of course, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he gives, he gives some proofs, and there's, if you're interested in proofs of the resurrection, there's this very eloquent, very short philosophical statement called the uh, Theory of Minimal Facts, Um, uh, which is proof of the resurrection of course there have been people trying to contest it but it's neither like uh, like nothing I've read seems to uh, seem seems to hold water there so we're gonna look to see how essential victory is. we're gonna look at the beginning of the book of Revelation the last book in the Bible it begins with an introductory chapter and then chapters two and three are all about these letters that get written to churches and each time a letter is written to a church, um, it follows. The letter follows a specific pattern. It's, it first it describes Jesus in a very particular way. To each church, he says, "The one who," and we're going to take an example. Sits among. The seven golden lampstands says. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth says. The one who... And the description is different for each church. We're going to talk very briefly about why. Then he describes the current state of that church. Right? Occasionally it's good. Most of the time they have stuff to work on. So he, give, he, he reprimands them and says, Be careful to deal with this and this and that. Then he gives them a corrective action. Repent and something, you know, return to your first works, repent and do not associate with such and such, and so on and so on, right? And then he gives a consequence or a reward, and we'll see that the word overcome, which is the same word as victory in Greek, in the New Testament Greek, ancient Greek, uh, nika, right, is, is this actually the same word, and it's that word victory or overcome is mentioned to every single church. For example, this is the, the letter to the first church. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your work, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So first he describes who he is. These things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So there's a reason that he said that, but we're not going to go into too much detail. Then he describes their current state. I know your works, your labor and so on, how hard you, you're working, right? But then he tells them, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So he gives the rebuke or the reprimand or the you know thing that could use some improvement. Like It's like a... A PIP at work, you know, what is it? A personal improvement plan, professional improvement plan, right? He gives, giving them each one, he's giving them their PIP, right? But you need to, you need to work on this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We can explain who they are, but we'll just keep going. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, I will this. To him who overcomes, I will that. Every single letter of the seven letters ends with, to him who overcomes. Naturally, Leads us to think, what about those who don't? Right? It doesn't talk about that. Let's not put ourselves in that camp. Let's just figure out what we can do to be with the gang who overcome. Right? Now, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. Right? At the end of each letter, it says, to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes, I will will give to eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, shall not be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name which is written, which no one knows except him who receives it. To him who overcomes, and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. To him who overcomes, shall be clothed in white garments. To him who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Obviously, none of none of them So God said, "Well, it's okay if you don't overcome." It's not optional. It's essential. It is part it, it is part of being with the victorious king. The, the king has won the battle. Now, some people are mourning, and some of them are rejoicing. Which camp are you in? Right? In the Old Testament, it was a sin punishable by stoning to mourn on a high feast day. A sin punishable by stoning to mourn high feast day. I was thinking about that to myself. Wow, that really stinks. Right? Because suppose I mourn on a high feast day, then I get stoned potentially the people who love me right now they can't mourn for me because i'm dead and they would probably would have been mourning for the person i was mourning for because they probably love the people i love so now they're double as sad right but if they mourn they get stoned too right what was god trying to tell these people he's trying to tell them that yes this person whom you love and is gone that is very sad and And God feels your pain. And there's so, 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 so many other parts of scripture that explain. But there's a greater truth which is more important. Which is more important. That God himself is victorious. And Jesus says, if you love father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children more than me, you cannot be my disciple." not saying, I won't receive you as my disciple. I don't want you as my disciple. Sorry you don't have the prerequisites. You didn't make the cut. You can't be on the basketball team. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you're just not going to be able to, to go the whole way. You're going to get tired. You're going to get distracted as we're going through, right? So, which team, which team am I on? Right? Am I on the winning team? That's a choice that each one of us makes. But the Lord wants His team to be winning and to always have an attitude of winning. Do we lose some battles? We do. But we have full assurance of winning the war. So if we look a little bit more carefully at these letters to the seven churches, and this is just a summary table, we'll find that each church kind of had its issue, right? And and then and then had, like what it need to deal with, and then ha- and had it word. And I just I'm just presenting this because it's a little dissatisfying to read all this stuff and not not to not to know what it means. But this is to tell you that these resources are widely available um, online. And of course, if you want more resources, I can I can refer you to some afterwards. Finally, at the very end of the book of Revelation, it says, "He who overcomes shall inherit." All things and I will be his God and he shall be my son it should be like gender neutral my child right but it says my son the only reason it could be truly intended to be in the masculine is because we are all members of the body of Christ right who is the son of God he's not only the child of God but is he is you know he was revealed to us in the masculine Right? So he is, the, he is the son of God, and we are the son of God in so much as we are members of the body of Christ. Of course, we are all children of God in relation to our own particular gender and problem with that. But look at the promise. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. All things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Corinthians uh, are, are fighting over who preached the gospel to whom. Right? And they're like, well, we are of Apollos. Well, we are of Peter. Well, we, I, I, I'm not any of you. I, I, I'm, a, I'm of Paul. Oh, yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm of Christ. I'm better than you are. Right? And they're all fighting between each other and having these divisions. And then St. Paul writes to them. He says, this doesn't make any sense. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. He says, don't you know that all things are yours, whether death or life, things in this age, or things to come, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. God is very rich, very rich, and desires to give you and me all things. But he wants us to start off with an attitude of victory. And next week, we're going to talk about how our victory is assured, how our victory is certain, right? There's a lot of things in life that we take and believe to be certain. I order something from Amazon and I'm pretty sure I'm gonna get it. Occasionally, once or something, they told me they would deliver it and they were like a day late or something. I'm gonna get it, for sure I'm gonna get it, but I might, in the very off chance, maybe I'll get it one day late. I believe in, in Amazon. Do I believe in God? And do I believe that my victory is assured? That's what we'll be talking about next week. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.